Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. This is a Sports Performance Radio Extra. Welcome to the latest Sports Performance Radio Extra. I am your host, as always, B. Chavez. And this is uh, kind of can become a show that I didn't intend. Um, I had a piece in mind to talk about. Uh, it does, in fact, involve doping. And uh, it just so happens that the, uh, the current affairs, the current news, has uh, given me a, a number of other pieces in which to talk to you, and they all kind of dovetail together. So this little news segment is going to be the, the doping segment. Just just works out that way. I'm always skeptical about bringing that much doping information all at once. I uh, hate to be associated as the drug guy, uh, although I'm afraid that has kind of already happened. But it's not really intended. As it happens, I had a drug piece prepared for you, and the current affairs has given me a little bit of extra material. So with no further ado, here it is. Let's see, in no particular order, um, in the MMA world. Bellator one uh, one forty nine, uh, kind of a middle scale pay per view. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Very UFC like. Anyway, two relative marquee athletes both failed uh, their doping tests. Uh, the compounds for which they failed were not listed, at least as of recording this. Uh, most likely anabolics, judging that by the names. And those two names are Kimbo Slice and Ken Shamrock, both aging athletes, both very much at the tail end of their career. So would not be even remotely surprising if we find that there's a, a T to ET ratio discrepancy or a blatant failure for, you know, stenozolol or something of that nature. Uh, Ken Shamrock's failed a number of tests in the past. I think it was stenozolol that, uh, that was his undoing. Uh, I'd have to double check that. But anyway, Current affair, interesting doping case. Two marquee athletes at one pay-per-view both failed the doping test. So that's kind of interesting. It also kind of gives you an indication of just how pervasive this is. Um, you know, I'm not really saying that is good or bad or anywhere in between. It's just the reality of it. I mean, there's probably only 20 athletes involved in the damn thing, and two of them failed. Um, that gives you an idea. Also in the current news, kind of a much bigger news story at least, uh, at least as far as the public is concerned, uh, professional tennis superstar, and it is definitely a sport. I want to make that clear. Definitely a sport that I do not follow. But uh, Maria Sharapova, Russian-born, American uh, national super tennis star. I don't really know enough about tennis to say what, but apparently she's the name. Apparently she's the big deal, and also very straight-laced. And you know, oh my God, not her. Well, yeah, her. She failed. Now, th this is a little shady on the f part of the doping organization. She sh failed for a drug, melodonium. Uh, it is an anti-ischemic. It's a cardiac medicine. It is only available in Eastern Europe, Russia, Latvia, some uh, Balkans, perhaps. Uh, it is not an U.S. FDA-approved drug. It's not available here. It's It's almost unheard of here. Um, also, as a side note, a number of athletes have failed for this drug, um, maybe maybe as many as 50. 
Uh, it's not really particularly new or novel. The This specific drug is, but um, drugs of this nature have been used in uh, the Western world for, oh, sure, uh, 30 years maybe? Um, the, the first drug that comes to mind is uh, Trental. Trental is a very similar uh, does a very similar thing, and it, it's been used in in uh, aerobic based athletics, tennis, soccer, all of that sort of thing for a very, very, very long time. Uh, the catch with this, with Maria Sharapova, is it has in fact been prescribed by a doctor uh, for a little rabbit ears quote legitimate cardiac uh, issue. Apparently, she claims to have a lifelong issue with irregular heartbeat. Uh, and this would be the right medication to treat that. Uh, I find it just absolutely flabbergasting that a person could have a lifelong cardiac condition and be one of the best tennis players on earth. That seems incredibly shady to me. But there is a doctor involved. There is a prescription involved. Um, you know, we'll have to see how they track down the channels in which the drug was acquired and the dosage, I did hear an unsubstantiated report that the dosage in which she was found with uh, in, the, in the serum plasma levels was not a level that would be useful for sports performance. Um, that's very interesting, but it's as I said, it's also very unfounded. So uh, that will be interesting to see because if she is really taking a therapeutic dose under a doctor's advice with a prescription, uh, it's very likely that there it would be difficult for the governing body to pursue that as a true doping failure. But, it, it, you know, I don't know enough about tennis to know their exact rule structure or how aggressive they pursue these things. A lot of people don't realize that different sports have varying degrees of aggression in pursuing this. Um, if this had happened, for instance, in baseball, nothing would have been done. They just don't care about such a thing. Uh, they care about steroids and amphetamines and nothing else. If this had happened in uh, soccer, you probably would have never even heard about it in the news, period. Um, then the other side of the coins, if it had happened in boxing, it would have been headline news, biggest thing ever. So different sports have different levels of uh, arrest about these sorts of things. So I, I don't know enough about tennis to really have an opinion, have even a thought. But it, it will be interesting to follow, and it'll also be interesting to track this drug through sports. Um, you know, my world of strength athletes and, and bodybuilders and strength athletes, and um, they will latch on to anything that they think might give them the slightest benefit. So it'll be interesting to see how and where it turns up in that world and uh, to what effect and all of that. So there's two little news stories that just happened to crop up, uh, you know, proximal to this show. But the real piece I wanted to cover kind of been going over in my mind um, – I don't put anything on paper. This is all just the ramblings of a crazy person, or or at least uh, so my wife says. But anyway, the piece that I had prepared for you is in reference to probably the greatest powerlifter to ever live, and uh, I refer to Edward Ignatius Cohn. Ed Cohn. Um, yeah, that is his middle name. Don't tell him I told you. Ed is uh, an absolute icon. Ed is... Well, as I said, almost certainly the greatest powerlifter to ever live. He's also a really decent human being. He's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Met him a hundred times, and never has he not taken the time to shake my hand, say hello, uh, as well as everyone else that, that crosses his path. Just a genuine, decent human being. 
Um, even during the portion of his life where he was injured, had some hip issues, had to have a hip replacement, even while he was in pain and, and just not a particularly happy person, uh, as pain will do to you, he still always took the time to say hello, shake a hand, take a picture. He's just a damn decent guy. Um, and that's kind of the purpose of this little bit I'm doing is, um, Ed, in his very post-competitive career and kind of his post-convalesced portion of his career, uh, he did have, as I said, a, a hip replacement, which took him kind of out of action and very much transitioned him from an athlete to a post-athlete, to kind of the elder statesman of powerlifting. And uh, and it's a role he can perform magnificently because the man has all the credentials in the world, has the best lifting record of any athlete on earth, a, a fleet, an absolute tome of world records. Um, guy's been competitive for, I, I'm not certain of the number, but 25 years perhaps, um, just really had the benchmark marquee career as an athlete. And now he's plying his general good nature, his extraordinary knowledge and immersion in the sport into a, as I said, kind of an elder statesman and, and also entrepreneurial as, as well as deserved. Um, some people kind of raise an eye at that and say, well, he's trying to make money. Of course he is. He's, he's a man. He needs to, needs to feed himself. He needs to feed his family. He needs remuneration for the greatness that he's done. I, that's silliness, but that's a separate subject. Um, so in this kind of post-career elder statesman scenario that we now find Ed, um, and this is relatively old news, what I'm about to mention. So this, this pr- part probably won't be news to any of you is Ed prepared uh, a number of seminars. He did all around the North America, us, Canada, and they went over extraordinarily. He, he filled houses, um, and again, you know, took pictures, shook hands, talked about powerlifting, did some exhibition lifting, just generally really did well. So well, in fact, that, um, some people organized a number of dates for Ed in Sweden, became kind of the, kind of known as the Ed Cohn Sweden tour. Uh, there was three dates posted, uh, all in June, I believe. I don't know if the actual, um, days were listed, but, but June, 2016, uh, one of the, one of them was Stockholm. I don't know where the other two were. Uh, they were advertised. I believe tickets were starting to be sold. And then this happened. And again, this isn't incredibly new news, but some of you may not know, and it is necessary to get into what I really want to get into. Um, what happened is after these dates were posted and advertised, and people were invested in them, the IPF, the governing body that Ed lifted in most of his competitive career, the USPF as the American arm, and then the IPF as the international arm, International Powerlifting Federation, uh, which is a member of WADA, which was way back then, I think it was still the IOC, but now it's WADA, the World Anti-Doping Association, and then with that also comes the American arm, which is the uh, uh, USADA, United States Anti-Doping Association. So the USADA and the WADA are essentially one, and they posted um, a response, an email that went out uh, on all of their social media uh, outlets, as well as their website, as well as their mailing list. Um, even went out to some of the bigger powerlifting websites, 
And I'm going to read you a small excerpt from that. Uh, this is just uh, not really, uh, it's just very uh, excerpt, so it, it, it doesn't have a lot of context, but you'll get the point. Um, it reads, The IPF and all member nations abide by a WADA code, which is the universal document regarding anti-doping rules. WADA rules explain that in sporting matters, we n- must not work or associate with individuals who are serving a period of ineligibility due to anti-doping rule violations. Therefore, we remind athletes and officials of all our member nations that attending events or associating with band lifters is prohibited by WADA. Please be aware that the type of activities that this rule would apply to, for example, in Sweden, Ed Cohn is conducting seminars. As indicated in the anti-doping violation list, Mr. Cohn is serving a ban for life from the IPF and thus is prohibited, or rather it is prohibited, to attend as this would violate Rule 2-10-0. So they are literally mentioning Ed by name, stating that because Ed had a number of WADA doping failures, and he did, he was therefore banned for life, and he was, that it is now prohibited by any WADA-associated athlete to associate with him, to attend a seminar put on by Ed, because that would be a violation of their rules. Um, to me, this is just absolute madness. I will point out, and I try to always be fair, that their rules are their rules. They can essentially be whatever the hell they want them to be. And in this case, I believe they are. Um, However, I find it incredibly affronting that they would name him by name, uh, rather single out that specific event. Um, A blanket general reminder of that rule wouldn't offend me nearly as deeply as actually name-dropping, saying, you cannot go see this guy, or you personally are in violation. Um, wow, that's strong stuff. In association, in reference to this, there's been an awful lot of commentary on various websites, and most of it's been in the fashion of the, the, the general idea that this is to prevent... Uh, the spread of drugs. This is to prevent people from getting the idea that it's okay to take drugs or that because Ed no longer has anything to do with the IPF, that they don't really feel that it in any way supports their cause. Um, both of those are asinine. Uh, Ed is the greatest lifter of all time. He set enormous records and totals in the IPF. So this is very much associated with and referenced to the IPF, no matter what. Uh, his name and theirs will always be intertwined. Um, so what I want to do is offer my thoughts on why this is. Again, the running theme is that you know the IPF and WADA don't want to lose their draconian grip on the sport of powerlifting. Well, that is absolutely true, but not at all in the fashion that I think most people are portraying it or kind of understand it. Uh, unfortunately, I've had an awful lot of dealings over my life, my career, with the WADA, which back then, again, was the uh, the 
uh, IOC, the International Olympic C- Committee, uh, later be spun off and became its own thing, which is WADA, and then the American Division, which is the USADA. Um, and having dealt with them, I could tell you one overriding thing. They are cowards. Deep, deep to their core, we're speaking about people that are cowards. They are deeply fearful. However, they are not fearful of what you might think. They are not afraid of drugs. Um, quite honestly, a fear of drugs would be, would be healthy. It would be sensible. It would be reasonable. Drugs are scary. Drugs are dangerous. Uh, drugs are illegal. Drugs are a lot of things. Drugs actually have the, the, the reasonable response of fear. E- even people that use drugs probably have a small, sensible fear of drugs. Um, unfortunately, these people, their cowardice is much deeper, much more selfish, and uh, much more sinister. They fear drug users. That's right. Take a moment and absorb that. Think about that. Now, I don't mean they fear legions of, you know, badly tattooed beanie cap wearing Chuck Taylor imbeciles mobbing the streets. Um, because that's just silly and actually kind of comical, and uh, they'd be out of breath before they actually caught anyone. Uh, that would just be silly. Uh, but, but still funny to picture in my mind, but that's a separate subject, uh, entirely. Um, they fear drug users in a sense that they fear someone like Mr. Ed Cohn. They fear someone that was successful, both at lifting and at defeating their drug test. They fear someone that's honest, like Mr. Ed Cohn, who says, yes, yes, I did do it. He doesn't hide from it. He doesn't, doesn't, now he's not running around with the band rag like, oh, I took drugs for 20 years and I beat their ass. No. But when you ask him, Ed, were you really guilty? Did you, did you fail the test? Every time he'll look you right in the eye and say, yes, I did. Yes, I took drugs. Yes, they caught me. Yes, it was a doping failure. They fear that. They fear that deeply because here you have someone who's successful, intelligent, articulate, relatively healthy. That scares the shit out of them because their entire party line has been drugs will kill you. Drugs will hurt you. You'll be sterile. You'll have liver disease. You'll have, you'll have an enlarged heart. You'll have this. You'll have that. Lo and behold, now we have this and many others. I'm, I'm singling out Ed. There are many, but here we have this intelligent articulate, capable, likable elder statesman that's neither dead nor dying, neither stupid nor poorly tattooed. He's not dangerous. He's not a felon. He's nothing except great for the sport of powerlifting. That scares the shit out of these people, scares them deeply, because if people begin to realize whether or not it's good or it's bad, it's legal or it's not, when people begin to realize that it is possible to do the things that Ed did and be the person that Ed's been and still be who Ed is in his post-competitive paradigm, when people begin to realize that, the fear that these WADA idiots have will begin to manifest. And people will begin to question whether or not they've been lied to whether or not the truth has been stretched to ridiculous lengths in regards to the safety and control of these compounds. And and never mind even the safety and control, but just 
the general paradigm. People really don't like to be lied to. They know they're being lied to day and night by their politicians, by their churches, by their parents. They know that they're being lied to. But what they don't like is to see the glaring example of that lying because it then begins to call everything into question. And that's what I believe is going to happen here. Very slowly, people like Ed are going to become the poster children, the, 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 the banner, banner carriers. Not personally, they're not going to be out on some, 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 some soapbox pontificating, but I think their very presence, their very abilities, their very successes are going to slowly be the undoing of these idiots like WADA, like the USADA, like the IOC, like the Olympics themselves. And I know that it's childish of me, but I personally find it extraordinarily entertaining to watch. And I hope that in my lifetime it really does happen. I hope that I can stand on the side of the pool and watch these WADA imbecile weasel liars these fearful cowards slowly slip below the surface in the pool of piss that they've released, the estrogen-infused urine, and just watch them slowly slide below the surface, bubbling. I will stand by and watch each and every one of them drowned in their own estrogen-infused piss and giggle and point, probably take pictures and draw arrows, make funny comments. But I'm a dreamer. I'm that guy. I can't help it. Uh, perhaps some of you can. I cannot. But there's my take on the Ed Cohn Sweden seminar fiasco. Um, oh, and it's a complete side note to that. Um, I had heard conjecture. I have not heard this from Ed or anyone directly related, but I had heard some conjecture that these events might actually now be canceled. And that would be very tragic. I hope that is not the case. Um, but I know Ed, I know his people, and I know the machinery at work, and that will certainly not be the end of him, nor his seminars, uh, and I strongly recommend, despite the IPF's uh, yammerings, I strongly recommend that you uh, support Ed, that you do, in fact, go to his seminars, because you will not find better knowledge on the sport of powerlifting, you will not find a better person in which to give it to you, and... Uh, you just generally won't find a better person. So I strongly suggest that you support Ed despite all of this nonsense. Even if you don't agree with me, that's fine. Uh, I'm well aware that I'm a maniac, but I feel good in my, my ramblings. So there's the news. And to wrap up this Sports Performance Radio Extra, I am going to leave you with something a little bit more positive rather than just my constant yellings. Uh, I'm going to leave you with an audio rip of a video I did some years ago in reference to diet design. This is basically all the information I use. Um, granted, uh, a truncated, abbreviated version, but basically the outline for all the information uh, necessary to design a professional, world-class sports performance diet for yourself or for anyone else. So, um, hopefully you can listen to this. Hopefully you can absorb it in an audio-only format. And hopefully it's some help to you. And as always, something I don't mention, as always, any of you out there listening to any of this, should you have any thoughts, ideas, comments, uh, please interact with either the 
Podbean website where this is listed, or the TeamEvilGSP.com website, or EvilGSP.com website, and definitely make yourself heard. Um, mention in your response whether or not you want to be mentioned on the air, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you. And with that, we'll cut away and go to that pre-recorded audio piece, and I'll see everyone on the first of the month for Sports Performance Radio. Hi, everyone. It's Bishvez from Evil Genius Sports Performance. I'd like to welcome you back to another edition of the Evil GSP video blog. And today's uh, today's edition is going to be the big one. Today's the one that I get all the questions for. And uh, I've been a little reluctant to kind of put this on video and put it out publicly simply because it is a major portion of how I earn my income, and that is nutritional design. Everyone wants to ask me about macros. How do you, how do you arrange your macros? And uh, um, kind of honestly, I, I find that the strangest question because really, um, big picture-wise, macro-wise, um, it, it's really a simple answer. It's really, really, uh, really simplistic. So today what I'm going to do is just run through the basic premise of how I do diet design, nutritional design. Uh, I'm not going to give away the ranch and go through the details because there is an awful lot to the details, but the big picture is very, very simple. So um, basically, as anyone who's listening to this should pretty much understand, there's you know three ba- major macronutrients, um, you know, protein or nitrogen, carbohydrates, and fatty acids. Fat, protein, carbohydrates, and then of course the collective calorie, or more accurately, really is kilocalories. Um, so it's pretty simple. As everything that I do under the Evil Genius banner, uh, I believe in a prescriptive method, a prescriptive modality. If you cannot pen it down on paper and say, this is how I determine things, uh, I don't believe it's real. Uh, a lot of people have this, oh, everybody's different, you have to find what works, and no, that doesn't work. You don't. That doesn't work when you go to your doctor. You, know, you go to your doctor with an infection, and he has a chart. It says, you know, you know your age, race, weight, sex, and, you know, and then you come down and it meets at a point. It says, you need this much medication. It's prescribed. It's, it's already predetermined based on, you know, a hundred years of research. And, um, that's the way I believe diet works. Um, so basically what I would do is I just give you a hypothetical, uh, 220 pound person, 100 kilogram person, probably a male at that body weight, but really isn't relevant. Um, sex doesn't come into the equations. Uh, in, in terms of nutrition, terribly much. So we've got a 220-pound person. Do everything in metric because that's how the world and science operates. So it's a 100-kilogram person. Okay. With the prescriptive method, what I do, I'll start with protein since it's an easy one. Um, all the research, I've got, you know, volumes and volumes, textbooks, you know, tons and tons of material. Uh, all of the research leads you to believe that you know, for regular people, the RDA is actually probably pretty close to accurate. They they say 0.8 grams per kilogram. Um, I typically you know round that to just about one gram. Uh, for just regular sedentary people looking for health, that's really plenty of nitrogen. It's been shown repeatedly from the beginning of athletic research, probably the 1960s, to very very modern that for strength training athletes. Um, and it's not even so much the strength training, it's really the volume of training, it's the training load, um, that somewhere between two and three 
grams per kilogram. There's a few aberrant studies that show uh, 3.2, I think, is the highest one I've seen. Um, but 2 to 3 is consistently the, the target number. Uh, there's actually some uh, more than a few studies showing 1.8 grams uh, of nitrogen per kilogram being just perfect. Uh, I don't know why. I've looked at the studies. I don't see anything that jumps out at me. Uh, could be the study design, could be the subject selection, uh, and it could just be that that's what that study found. Uh, not this stuff, you know, you would need thousands and thousands and thousands of subjects to repeat these to really hone it down to an exact number. Uh, and then again, with something like, you know, athletic performance, race and sex and all these things do factor in. So subject selection is probably the biggest issue. But um, for my research, um, I typically you know, reference uh, Dr. Marudi Pasquale's uh, book, Amino Acids, very textbook-like uh, tome, wonderful, wonderful piece, uh, or um, Lyle McDonald's Protein Book. And both of them, if you read them inside and out, top to bottom, they keep consistently coming back to that 2 to 3 gram per week per gram window, and uh, I typically start people at two grams. It's a long-winded thing to get to that, two grams. So if you weigh 100 kilograms, two grams per kilogram, it's pretty simple. Talking about 200 grams of protein. That's it. It's simple. Now, I say it's simple. In my actual you know, professional paradigm, I break that down, food types, timing, there's a lot to that other than just random 200, you know, 200 grams and Flop, there you are. There's a little more to it than that in terms of actual practical application. But overview, very simple, two grams per kilogram. Uh, same thing with fatty acids, prescriptive method. I've looked at research, and this is, is one that's a little harder because uh, race does come into it. Uh, different different uh, ethnic backgrounds seem to tolerate and even utilize and, and, and thrive and not thrive on fatty acids, saturated fat, that sort of thing. Um, but the short answer is consistently there seems to be uh, a benefit to a little more than the RDA suggests and then a cap on that limit. And that typically happens somewhere in the 0.8 to 1 gram per kilogram range. It's just very clean, simple math to round that to 1 gram per kilogram. It's cake. So you've got 2 grams per kilogram of nitrogen, 1 gram per kilogram of fat, uh, interestingly, those both come out to the same calorie load, 4 calories per gram in the protein and 8 calories per gram in the, uh, the, the fatty acids. So you get 800 calories twice or 1,600 calories. That is bedrock. In my style of diet designed with a prescriptive method, that's it. You always eat that. I mean, unless you're preparing in the final weeks for a bodybuilding show or something. In any normal 52 weeks of the year kind of paradigm, that's it. You always eat that. Okay. Now, of course, there's carbohydrates. And really, I don't even consider it carbohydrates as much as I consider it the difference in energy, the energy difference. Okay. Again, a prescriptive method. I have found consistently through just, just dozens of years of doing this that, and, and of course, you know, actual clinical research. Uh, although clinical research fails in this powerlifting and strongman bodybuilding type sports because clinical body weights don't get as high as we have. Uh, you know, we, we just have much more lean mass. So the, the, the dietary guidelines really f fail us at that point. But it has consistently come to light that between 20 and 40 kilocalories per kilogram. 
I realize that's a very broad range, but it's a broad range for a reason. It's because conditions are different. Exactly how much muscle mass, exactly how active, uh, a lot of things in the middle, exactly at what rate are you gaining muscle mass, that sort of thing. But 20 to 40 kilocalories per kilogram, I've never met anybody that couldn't tolerate 20 kilocalories. I mean, you're, you're almost dead at that point. And I've met, or actually I have met a rare few maniacs that can actually consume more than 40 kilocalories per kilogram, but it's usually been because of tricky means, uh, you know, medium chain triglycerides or some sort of quasi-ketogenic thing or something. To really consume a normal mixed diet at that kind of calorie load is really hard. So typically what I do is I shoot the middle dead on 30 kilocalories per kilogram with this uh, imaginary subject. 220 pounds, 100 kilograms, that's pretty simple math, it's 3,000 calories. We've already determined that they're going to get 1,600 baseline all the time because that's how much nitrogen and fatty acids they need. So 1,600 from 3,000 leaves you with 1,400 calories. That's your energy, carbohydrates. Uh, also, and, and I'm not going to go into the detail here, but it could also be uh, medium-chain triglycerides and some other you know clever exotic fatty acids and that sort of thing. But for the sake of argument, basically, and as a, as a caveat, when I do interject those, I actually don't, as a lot of diet people do, they consider them you know, fatty acids and they, they show these really high fat levels or something. I actually consider them as just an, an additional macronutrient. I'll actually pencil in X amount of carbohydrates, X amount of fat, X amount of protein, and then X amount of MCTs or whatever. I, I literally treat them as a, a fourth category. I think it's cleaner and I think it uh, better represents what's going on. So when you review that data later, but back to the point, 3000 calories, 1600 for fat and protein leaves you with 1400 calories, kilocalories, divide that by four calories per gram, 350 grams of carbohydrates. There it is. There's your diet. 350 grams of carbohydrates, 200 grams of protein, 100 grams of fat. That's the baseline. Now this, everybody's different. We're all snowflakes. Kind of comes into play because we all have different conditions. We all have different starting points. We have different caveats and that sort of thing. So we would start with this diet. We would track it. And depending on nuances, we might raise or lower the carbohydrate content. Um, it's even possible that we could fiddle with the macro, uh, the protein or, or fat based on food tolerances, um, you know, ethnicity. Some people just simply the foods that they're exposed to happen to be more of this or more of that. We can deal with that, but that's your fundamental baseline structure. If you follow that, you're not far off. It's just a matter of tweaking. It's not a matter of radical redesign. That's always the case. And it's so perfectly always the case even in a paradigm where you're eating this 3000 calorie diet you maybe you figure out or as your body cleans up and runs better you, you find out it okay it's 3200 calories or it's 2800 calories usually actually the higher i find that once people get on a program like this and really follow a prescriptive method something happens under the hood uh i'd like to take the professional arrogance route and say it's because the diet is good um Athletic performance is more maximized, and so the metabolic spending of energy to build muscle recovery, that sort of thing, goes up. So your your, your carbohydrate requirement goes up. Um, could be a lot of other things, but that's the one I'll, I'll I'll hang my hat on. 
And and so, you know, I typically find people maybe need a little more energy as as the diet progresses. But regardless of the case, and even in a scenario where you have to make weight for a class or even prepare for a bodybuilding contest, you never want less nitrogen because you, you don't want to tell your body to be smaller. Um, fatty acids probably could be trimmed at the very end, but in general, they're in there because that's how much your body needs to really be healthy and, and, and perform athletically. So again, they would stay. So the thing you lower is that energy reserve for the carbohydrate. So, you, you know, 350 grams, maybe goes to 300 grams, maybe goes to 275 and on and on and on and all the way down to approaching potentially even a ketogenic state, but not necessarily. It, that would track to purely dependent on leanness, you know, how far out from the event, that sort of thing. So it's really just a matter of modulating that additional energy. Hopefully you never get to a point where you need to begin to cut into your fat and nitrogen. It can happen, especially with some of the smaller women. But uh, typically with men, they carry enough muscle mass, they carry enough metabolism, which really is your muscle mass, to, uh, to, to, to just literally coast into an event. I've brought people in onto bodybuilding stages at 5% body fat, uh, you know, never getting below 100 grams of carbohydrates, ever, period. Um, you know, perhaps some manipulation of final days, but I mean, the general target leanness has been achieved by that, simply by following a prescriptive method of fixing their protein, fixing their fatty acids, and then just modulating their carbohydrates and, you know, supplements, drugs, that sort of thing, to bring them to a destination. So, there you are, basic macro outline. Uh, I say basic, it's actually, that is the outline, there really is no more. Uh, everything more is food selection, food timing, arrangements, uh, you know, exactly what kind of carbohydrates, how fibrous, how starchy, how that sort of thing. Uh, fatty acids, you know, you've got your you know, saturated, unsaturated, you know, polyunsaturated, that sort of thing. Your manipulations of fish oils and all the different things you can do to arrive at a, a total amount of fat. Uh, and same thing with protein. There is some differences within you know, protein compositions and that sort of thing, but actually that's a lot less complicated than people make it. But the reality is there's a lot more to diet design, but that's the template, and it works all the time, and I suspect everyone that's successful out there is doing something very similar, even if they're not telling you that's what they're doing, because science is science. The body works the way the body works. We're not all snowflakes. We're not all individuals. You're not special. This is how the stuff works, folks. So there you are. Big overview on evil genius sports performance macros or more realistically diet design. So until next time, be Chavez, evil genius sports performance, stay strong. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.